0: with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am Jonathan Strickland and today, together, again, uh,
1: at last, what a duo. Scott
0: Benjamin. Hey, I'm back. Joining the show and I, and I actually have you here talking about cars. Yeah,
1: as again. usual. But uh, but thank you. You know what? I always appreciate the invite. And uh, and this one is again right in my wheelhouse here. So well, I'm uh, Wheelhouse, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm excited, excited about,
0: about it. Yeah, it's where I keep my wheels. In the house, uh, yeah. So we're we're talking today about a peculiar event, something that happened in February 2016, and and it's just taken me this long to finally get around and, and addressing it. You might have heard in previous episodes of Tech Stuff about how I would champion the fact that Google, with their self-driving cars, had had enormous success, flawless, you might argue, success. Something like 1.45 million miles driven. Without a single accident caused by the autonomous system that there had been about 14 or so accidents, but all of those were either, uh, the fault of a person manually driving the car in manual mode or another driver colliding with the autonomous car, but never the fall of the autonomous car itself. It was a perfect system. Until February 2016.
1: Yeah, and that is the day of what what I'll call, and I I really don't mean to over dramaticize this at all. So maybe I'm titling this episode. I think maybe sure. Um, we should call this the Saint Valentine's Day Google self-driving car massacre. Oh, that
0: is an excellent title, and that's, I, that's I'm all for it.
1: Definitely not overly dramatic in any way. Well, I
0: mean, it's it's also funny because we're recording this uh, the week after I've gotten back from South by Southwest, and this was a topic that was. Discussed heavily at South by Southwest because until this incident, it was a very easy sell to say autonomous cars are the way to go. And then this little accident happened and, and it, it wasn't terrible. We'll get into the details of the accident, but this little accident happened and suddenly it sounded like Google's autonomous car had caused an enormous pile-up on the highway.
1: Everyone was much more cautious. So you're maybe not buying my alternate title then? Is that what you're saying?
0: What's your alternate title? Well, I mean that. The, no, no, the, no that. The, I'm totally for No, Day. I think it is a massacre, but I think it's a massacre in the sense of the public perception of autonomous cars.
1: <laughs> I see. Okay, see? you're going sw- to switch this on. Yeah, right, I'm so, thinking of it from a PR standpoint. Now, I could, I could take this opportunity to gloat and say, <laughs> Aha, they're not as infallible as you thought. They're uh, They're not perfect. But but I'm going to take a, a different stance here in yeah. this in this podcast. And and I think that as we as we talk through this, uh, we're going to realize that they've been held to a much higher standard than they probably need to be. Right. And I know that's that's tough to to take, you know, when you when you just hear it that way. But listen to our argument back and forth about this and and understand that they're being held to perfection when they probably shouldn't be when Humans, I mean, we're we're not perfect, of course. Right. There's a a, a vast um a, a chasm between uh, what the the, uh, the standards that they're held to versus the standard that human test drivers are held to. Sure,
0: yeah. If you look at if you look at the standard driving test that you have to pass before you get a license, uh, I would argue most autonomous cars could likely pass such a test as close to flawlessly as you can get, uh, but. You don't have to be flawless when you take a driver's test. There's room for you to not completely do something perfectly. Like if your parallel parking isn't exactly right, you're going to get points deducted from your total, but you may still be, you know, high enough, score high enough so that you can pass the full driver's test.
1: Exactly. You knock over a cone, it's not really a big deal, but an autonomous car knocks over a cone, everybody points at it and says, "Oh, look at that thing. It's it's a pile of junk."
0: Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's interesting that you point that out, too, because that ties into a different discussion I saw at South by Southwest that wasn't specifically about autonomous cars. It was about robots. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but it, it goes to illustrate the point you just
1: made. I love tangents.
0: So this this uh, uh, panel about robots, there was a woman, uh, Layla Takayama, who used to work for Google X, but not in the autonomous car division. Uh, she talked about how she ran a, a an experiment. She got a guy from Pixar to do a series of very simple animations to show people the interactions between a robot and a person and then to judge which robot is considered uh, intelligent versus not intelligent. And the whole point of this was to show the differences between succeeding and failing but giving no indication that the robot understands it succeeded or failed or building in expressions for the robot to follow a success or failure uh, to indicate it, quote unquote, understands what happened. And it was fascinating because they showed a, a very simple uh, uh, experiment with a, a robot trying to open a door. And again, this is an animation. So there was uh, different scenarios. There's one where the robot opens the door and the door opens and then the robot just sits there and it's it's done because it's done what it was supposed to do. There's one where the robot opens the door and then kind of perks up like, oh, I, I did what I wanted to do. There was one where the robot fails to open the door and then does nothing. Uh, and then there was one where the robot fails to open the door and then slumps down a little bit as if to say, oh, I'm disappointed. I didn't succeed. They then asked people to judge which robots they thought were the most intelligent. And everyone said the robot that failed but showed disappointment was more intelligent than the robot that succeeded but didn't show any expression at all. No kidding. And when you think about that, again, it's holding robots to a standard that doesn't necessarily apply to them because of the human element, this human-robot interaction. We're holding autonomous cars to a similar Standard that perhaps is not fair. We're holding robots to a standard that's not fair, but that means that people who are designing autonomous cars and people who are designing robots have to take that into consideration.
1: Because that's the way humans are. Well, this is interesting because you're you're mentioning specifically imitating human behavior. Yes. And this comes up in um, an article that I read in, uh let's see, it was in The Verge. Yes. And yes. The Verge and, article, you might have read the same yes, thing. Yes, it's an excellent and, article. Yeah, it really is. And uh a, a person by the name of uh, Jennifer Haroon, mm-hmm. she's the head of business operations for Google's self-driving project. And by the way, let's come back to the details of the accident in just a moment. Sure. We'll, we'll describe what happened. Mm-hmm. But she says that, well, you know what? Maybe I need to back this up just a second here. How about this? Let's describe the accident, and then we'll talk about what she said because sure. it, it, it plays perfectly into it. So, and, I, it, and helping understand what happened.
0: So here's here's how you can imagine it. All right, you've got an intersection uh, in Mountain View, California, which is where Google's headquarters is yeah. located. Yeah. And you've got the, uh, the Google self-driving car. Correct me if I get any of this wrong, Scott. I'm going from memory here. That's
1: alright. I'm doing mostly the same. <laughs> it,
0: it, so the Google self-driving car is in the right lane and it wants, it's planning on making a right turn at this intersection. Yes. Now, at the corner of the intersection, there were some sandbags that were a partial obstruction of the lane that yeah, it was think, in. Yeah,
1: I think they were bro- uh, blocking a, uh, a sewer entry, a grate maybe or something.
0: Right. So the Google car detected that there was a an obstruction. And so it had to plan an alternate way to make its right turn. It still wanted to follow the route that it had planned. So the, the change would have been for it to kind of edge into the next lane over, the next lane to the left, before making a right turn. Behind the Google car, approaching at a blistering speed of 15 miles per hour, was a bus. And so the Google car recognized there was a bus coming, It was moving at a very slow speed at two miles per hour. The Google car said, well, based upon my programming, what I should expect happen is that the bus will slow down, allow me to move through. I'll clear the intersection. The bus will continue. What actually happened was the Google car made the move into the lane. The bus continued and there was a low speed collision and there were no injuries. No one was hurt. There was, in fact, a driver behind the wheel of the Google car. It's just the driver wasn't in control. The autonomous system was in control. And some people might say, well, you know, the bus driver just didn't let the car in. But Google actually said, and this is important. Google came out and said, we accept responsibility for this. This is something that uh, it's it's valuable that this information has come to light because it means that we need to revisit this particular part of the autonomous car programming. Now, uh, I thought that was really interesting. First of all, I have never heard of a company accepting responsibility for something so fast in my life. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, it, they did and they didn't. I mean, there's a yeah. couple of versions of this. Now, yeah. you got the details of the accident correct, although I did hear, and this, this is a bit confusing, I did hear that the lanes in this particular part of town are extremely wide. And so what happened was the car uh, kind of edged itself over toward the curb. Uh, so mm. it was... Um, I guess uh, mimicking human behavior again and I'll I'll get to that in just a minute but um you know once once this accident happened and they said you know we we do need to investigate this they did that to the tune of about 3500 new tests that they've now implemented since wow. this accident that said we're going to watch for this you know we need to uh, understand a little more deeply that uh, some of these larger vehicles may have a diffi- a more difficult time stopping in traffic mm-hmm. than a smaller vehicle will. And, and that's the reason why some of these bigger vehicles like to continue on their path and think, well, maybe someone behind me will let them in. Google did say we were relying on an element of human kindness um, to let us into that lane, and that's normally what happens. It really does. Usually there's a back and forth or, you know, maybe – there's always going to be that offhanded time where, you know, someone does cut through and, and Right. Refuses. They're just like,
0: they're like, no, I need to get through that intersection in this light cycle and no one is going to stop me.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm going to be 10 feet ahead of you when all this happens. Right. And that's where I, you know, that's, that's my goal. But uh, um, usually what happens is it's an alternating pattern and they expected that to happen and it didn't happen in this case. And this is where it plays right into what um, Jennifer had mentioned. Now, Jennifer Haroon, who is the head of business operations for Google's self-driving uh, project, explained at uh, and I think she was at the South by Southwest conference as well mm-hmm. and she said that the the, uh, the Lexus it's a Lexus vehicle that was outfitted with this gear said that it struck the bus in part because it was imitating human behavior and that's I, I found that interesting that she she kind of is deferring the the, uh, the, the fault here in this uh, to say well we were just imitating what we see on the streets and that's uh, that's kind of what happened so well, it's a we,
0: it's a double deferral in a way, right? Because first they say we were counting on an element of human kindness, which is already kind of a deferral in itself, right? Sure, yeah. You're you're essentially saying, well we were cons- we were thinking that the bus driver would be a decent human being and not a Lexus hating scumbag. That's I'm paraphrasing <laughs> what they said. Obviously, I'm taking a yeah. little liberty. And then in this one you're saying she's also saying well, we designed the car to behave the way we see actual cars behaving on the road. So in in both cases you're almost it's a little bit of backing away from taking full responsibility.
1: Exactly. And this imitating human behavior that she's talking about was that they had recently taught the vehicles to hug the right-hand side of that lane when they're making that right-hand turn. Mm-hmm. And that that's when it encountered the uh, the sandbags that were unexpected. Mm-hmm. And so this is what I find interesting is if it's a wide lane and she's saying that it was hugging the right hand side of that lane, trying to make the turn as most humans do. If it was in the center of the lane, she's saying if it had just behaved as they normally would do it, you know that it would be in the exact dead center of that lane, the bus wouldn't have had the uh, the gap, I guess, and tried to try to make it through that gap so so it
0: would have just been behind the car. it
1: never would have happened. So she's saying right. in in effect, because we're trying to make it mimic human behavior and we were hugging that right side, that's why this accident happened. Maybe we shouldn't have done that. But then again, they come back and say that that's absolutely nece- necessary for them to mimic human behavior. Because if they don't, that causes trouble as well. There's right. other issues that arise.
0: Like if a if a vehicle, let's say that it's an uh, a autonomous car heading toward an intersection. Uh, the light goes from green to amber. And there's technically enough space for the car to brake safely and come to a complete stop as the light turns red knowing that most humans would just gun it <laughs> or at least just continue at the same speed to go through the intersection while it's still amber you might want to think about that when you're designing your autonomous car so that you don't cause a pileup behind you like you don't uh, if the person directly behind the autonomous car expects the car in front of them to continue through the intersection you could potentially get rear-ended
1: Yeah, it happens a thousand times around. I mean, more than that, but it happens all over the world, really.
0: Especially in Atlanta, where the rule is, if the light turns red, three cars get to go through.
1: (laughs) That is so true, isn't it? Yeah. It seems like uh, once one goes through, two more follow you through. Yes. It's crazy.
0: Yeah, I've seen it happen in multiple places around the city. There's some neighborhoods where it's worse. I'm not going to name any names, Buckhead, but I'm just saying. Yeah, never Mm.
1: accelerate immediately on a green light anywhere in this area. Because uh, you can expect... There's gonna be that, uh, that oddball car that comes through after.
0: Right, and there's gonna be like a a car that's been waiting to turn left the whole time and they say, I'm not waiting another light cycle, I'm just going now. Mm -hmm. Like even if they're behind the stop line. Yeah, I'm
1: sure, I'm sure it happens everywhere, but it's, uh, it's particularly bad in these congested areas yes
0: so uh, to your point it is important to take those things into consideration when designing the autonomous car you don't want an autonomous car to drive like a inconsiderate jerk of a driver but at the same time you can't have it be so clinically precise that it is standing out from all the other drivers the only way that works is if you get to a point where you're at a saturation point with autonomous cars on the road where then you can affect the behavior on a mass scale across a fleet of cars and not have that issue of human drivers having awful interactions with uh, robotic drivers.
1: Exactly. Here's here's the way they state it. These, uh, mm-hmm. these spokesmen state it. They say it's vital for us to develop advanced skills that respect not just the letter of the traffic code, but the spirit of the road.
0: I think nice. that's, a good, that's a good way to put it, the yeah. spirit
1: of the road. I understand that. I, I completely get that when I read it, yeah. is that, yeah, there's little rules here and there that we bend, but everybody bends them, and you you expect you you understand how other drivers are going to behave in the same situation, and you expect that to happen. Right. And you behave in that way, and it all works. But when something comes in, a spoiler comes in, um, and it follows exactly to the letter of the law the way it's supposed to happen, that person may be the uh, you know the standout.
0: Right. Another great example of that in Atlanta would be, uh, we have a couple of different highways that run through the city and one that runs around the city, 285. And 285 is often thought of as the type of highway that if you get on it, you have to speed. You cannot go the speed limit on 285. It's just too dangerous because everyone else is going above the speed
1: yeah, limit. Massive truck traffic.
0: Yeah. And yeah. And there are enormous, enormous semis, uh, rushing down there. And you don't want to get, you don't want to be, poking along Mm -hmm. when they come up behind you. So again, an autonomous car would need to have that information and take that into account unless you got to a point where you had so many autonomous vehicles on the road that it was no longer a a a concern.
1: Yeah, and this is where we we discussed this yesterday because we were talking off air about this just a little bit to to prep for today. And uh, The idea would be that it's kind of like schooling almost, like fish Mm. schooling um, in that uh, the cars know where the other one is at all times Mm -hmm. and they can communicate between them. The problem is when you throw in the human driver element into that mix. Right. Or, uh, you know, if, if, if you have just one autonomous car among all humans, that's the other problem. Yeah. That's the other issue. Yeah. And right now, that's the battle that they're fighting. Right, right.
0: So once we get to a point where there's that that tipping point uh, one way or the other, then uh, things will be very different. But there's going to be some growing pains. And this also leads into something that I talked about uh, earlier in 2016. Um, when I went to CES, Toyota had their big uh, AI Discussion. You know, they they're investing uh, millions of dollars in AI research for autonomous cars and beyond. And one of the things they talked about was how autonomous cars in general are really really good at handling all the mundane stuff that you would typically encounter on a normal day driving from point A to point B. What they are not good at is dealing with stuff that's outside of that norm and the sandbags that we talked about earlier would be a great example of that. It's some form of obstruction that's partially, uh, blocking off part of the road and that ends up, uh, causing a, a different scenario and sometimes the car behaves in a way that works out for everybody. In this case, it didn't. And, uh, it's not, it's not that the car couldn't handle the situation. It's just that the method that the car used Turned out to not be reliable.
1: Yeah, this was a, an extremely slow speed crash, as we've said. And yes. Now, the, the bus was traveling 15 miles per hour in the other lane, trying to get through that gap, but the, the Google car was traveling, I think they said, two, you know, two yeah, miles, two miles per, hour. per hour. Yeah, very, very slow, yeah. very slow speed. So the thing is, like, with the, with the, um, the, the compensation for this, you know, the, mm-hmm. the 3,500 tests that they're now going to run additional tests, uh, to determine or to, to find a way around that situation so that it's never going to happen again I mean, we're, we're going to do everything we can but to to think about it that way to say 3500 tests that are going to allow this vehicle to to think about that exact situation and never let it happen again where it, where it just kind of noses out into uh into a, a lane that appears open yeah uh, that's remarkable i mean it, it just lets you know that uh there there are tens of thousands of of um uh, programs or or, or um, thoughts—I don't know how to say it—that uh, right. well, are they're going through this thing at all times. You know, um, all these saying,
0: calculations, yeah, yeah.
1: calculations, and parameters, and, and just uh, you know, if this, then that. You know, those scenarios right. are being run all the time. It's just incredible. It's mind-boggling. It really is. And and I was looking into. You said one one point four five million miles have been driven uh, flawlessly. Really. Right. I mean, they hadn't had any problems. Uh, you know, at at fault. I guess. Right. The autonomous vehicle. Do you know how much they uh they they test uh, on a daily basis and on a a um yeah actually on a daily basis? No, no. Okay, well, let's see. I got a, I got a note here. I should have uh, looked for that as I was uh, reading it. <laughs> okay, here we go. All right. So, actually this is a per week and then a per day thing. All right. They drive 10,000 miles per week and that's like uh you know, somebody in a vehicle on the road. 10,000 mm. miles per week. Per day though. This number is incredible. Per day, they are driving three million miles of computer simulation miles. Uh, you oh, know? okay. So three yeah. million, the equivalent of three million miles. That's because uh, th- they can quickly just go through that and have multiple systems running these things, you know, so... so the the amount of testing that they do in a year is just unbelievable. Mm-hmm. I don't have yearly stats or anything, but you can extrapolate those numbers to that.
0: Well, and and uh the other point in the Toyota press conference that was interesting to me, and this goes back to what you were saying at the beginning of the show about holding autonomous cars at a different standard than we hold human drivers. Uh they talked about how you often like, a lot of the autonomous uh car industry talks about the 100 million mile um uh benchmark saying that you want uh you want 100 million miles traveled of proven safety and they said you know that's not enough you need to go much bigger than that 100 billion miles and i thought wow that is i mean i i get it for you want that many miles so that you can encounter as many possible different situations as you might encounter on the road because mm-hmm. Obviously, if you, if you plan a system and it's great for handling 99% of the situations, that's fine until you run into that 1%. And when you do figure out how many cars are on the road in the United States alone traveling on any given day, you realize the odds are eventually, I mean, statistics show, statistics prove, like, odds are sooner rather than later, one of those autonomous cars will encounter a situation that would have been impossible to anticipate in the programming phase. Yeah. So well, I I get it on one hand. On the other hand, I get frustrated because I really want to see this feature get here as soon as possible. But I, I totally understand the need for that level of, of uh, uh, precision that's demanded so that you can be sure that nothing uh, catastrophic happens – when a car encounters something that the programmers just did not anticipate.
1: Now, uh, Chris Ermson again, uh he was the uh what was his title? Shoot. I think it he's director
0: up. of the self-driving car project.
1: Director, that's right. Yeah. That's, I couldn't remember if he's director or not, but he um he did say and this is uh I don't you can find this troubling I guess if you want to, but uh, I I understand what he's saying. He says that, you know, of course the February 14th was a tough day for his team, mm-hmm. obviously. But he says and I thought this was interesting he said we we've got to be prepared for more days just like that if we're going to ever succeed in creating this this project you know making this work and we're actually going to have worse days than that and when i when i hear that you know we're going to have worse days than that of course you think you know the worst you think that it's going to be involved in an accident that is fatal or mm-hmm. you know harms somebody anybody in any way and of course that would be an awful day that'd be a worse day than what we've seen but you kind of have to Expect something like that is going to happen. If you're traveling, if you're traveling 300 billion miles, like you said, or, you know, whatever the, the enormous number of miles on the road that they want to travel is, mm-hmm. um, I would guess that, you know, when you're talking about three, or 300 million or billion or whatever it was, those might be con, uh, computer simulated miles because, you know, the three sure. million, three million a day is, a, is an enormous number and that adds up quickly. But, you know, 10,000 miles per week of actual, you know, physical driving, On the road yeah. testing, that's, that's pretty impressive still, but, how long would that take to get up to uh, you know, yeah. 300 million? And, you know, I think somebody who laid it out pretty clearly here is the U.S. Transportation Secretary. His name is Anthony Fox. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's the one who said, uh, where I initially read, I guess, don't, don't compare these to perfection. You can't right. do that. And one of the quotes here in an article that I read uh, from the BBC says uh that... He says it's not a, a surprise that at some point there'd be a crash when they've got this brand new technology on the road, but what I, what I would challenge anyone to do is to look at the number of crashes that occurred on the same day that were the result of human behavior. Mm-hmm. And that gets right back to what you were saying and that, you know, there's so many miles driven every day just here in the U.S., around the world, all over the place that you just, you know that bad stuff is happening all yeah. the time, every minute, literally.
0: All right. But uh, this is a great opportunity for me to transition from the, the Google story, which is, you know, it's again, it has huge implications for the autonomous car industry. Uh, even though it was in, in the grand scheme of things, a minor accident, it was something that, uh, once, once you realize, Oh, they're not perfect. Then it starts raising some questions. Yeah, they right? said
1: these uh, these talks were a bit more subdued after that point.
0: Yeah, and at South by Southwest, like that was definitely happening. Although I went to a couple of different panels about autonomous cars where they didn't even bring it up. They were gung ho. I mean, the general feeling at South by Southwest is that autonomous cars are a definitive future that are coming, and that uh, that most likely there will be some form of shared services model for autonomous cars. I think most people. Uh, agreed that personal ownership, uh, is going to slowly phase out largely because younger generations don't necessarily see the necessity of owning a car. And there were some interesting statistics too. Uh, I saw a panel. It's called robot cars and sharing road rage or smooth sailing. Mm, interesting. And, uh, this was, this had three panelists on it, a moderator and two panelists. Uh, one was, uh, the, the moderator was Frederick Su of a company called Nato. Nato creates, uh, an app and a camera setup where you can essentially upgrade your car into a smart car. Not an autonomous car, but a smart car where it's able to use, uh, information from the camera and, uh, run it through some algorithms that are on the back end of the data system that then transmits to your app to let you know things like how well a, how good of a driver is the driver that kind of stuff so it's also used for like fleet management uh uh you can use it to figure out if the driver you've just hired to be one of your your employees if that was a good choice or not or maybe you need to rethink that so that kind of stuff
1: based on driving behavior
0: yeah oh, and cool. uh, and it it pulls information from a lot of different sources but the camera is the primary one uh, he was the moderator. And then you had Shad Laws from Renault, uh and who was funny because he talked about, Renault is a brand that is famous around the world but not here in the U.S. But you might know our partner, Nissan.
1: And then – uh <laughs> Yeah, we knew Renault back in, what, the mid-'80s, I think. Yeah. That was about it.
0: Yeah. And then there was uh, Mark Platschin from BMW, who was actually a substitute. Originally, it was supposed to be Marianne Wu of GE Ventures. But uh we'll have a little bit more to say about BMW in just a minute cuz I can't wait to tell Scott about this. So <laughs> one one some let me throw you some some statistics at you or some of the facts at you sure. that Sue brought up. So one of the things he he said was that the typical American car spends 96% of its life
1: parked. 96% of its life parked. That's an enormous uh, chunk of time.
0: Yeah, so only 4% of your typical American car Knowing that there are cases outside on either end, uh, 4% of it is actually used driving around. Wow. So with that, when you, when you hit someone with that, assuming that that is in fact correct, I don't know where his source was for 96%, but assuming that is in fact correct, you can start to see an argument for a fleet of autonomous vehicles that can drive around on demand and pick someone up and drop them off because that means you could free up the space that would be taken by a parked car and use it for something else. Because, I mean, a lot of our spaces uh, are reserved for parking. In fact, there are regulations for office buildings about how much square footage you have to set aside for parking in certain cities. It depends on the city, but uh, imagine that you have a world where People are relying on autonomous cars to pick them up and drop them off. You don't need that space for parking anymore. You can actually dedicate that to something else and make because of money. Oh, I sure. think is the way they put it. But anyway, plant a tree, plant a tree. You could also do that. I mean, come <laughs> on, you know, tree hugger. Um, no, I, I also think that would be awesome. So one of the things that I thought was shocking, it it. it, it I think the effect on me was not what the speaker was planning. Uh, Shad Laws of Renault was talking about the, uh, the safety factor of autonomous cars. And his argument was that, um, uh, safety, the uh, autonomous cars, first of all, we can't determine that they're more safe than human driven cars yet because we don't have enough information. We don't have enough autonomous cars on the road. We haven't had enough scenarios to really tell. But then he also said safety is really not as big a deal as you might think, because the safety benchmark is to try and have fewer than one fatality per 100 million kilometers driven. Now, in the United States, it is 1.08 fatalities for 100 million miles, but a mile is longer than a kilometer, right? One mile is 1.6 kilometers. So it's still below that one fatality per one hundred million kilometers. And then he said, for most countries, that's the case. There are a few that are above it, but not many.
1: So is this an unrealistic standard to be uh, to be held to?
0: Well, I think I think what he was trying to say is that human drivers are pretty safe already, and therefore you can't sell autonomous cars on the promise of safety because we're so safe already. I would counter that argument. By saying more than 30,000 people died last year as a result of car accidents. That's 30,000 fewer people around today because of a car accident and more, something around the order of 90% of car accidents are at the fault of the human, of a human driver, at least one human driver. Mm-hmm. And so my counter to that argument is that it may be statistically speaking a safe thing. But when you get down to actual numbers with real human being lives attached to it, uh I would argue that the autonomous vehicles so far have proven to be a really good move in the right direction mm-hmm. to reduce that number dramatically.
1: This is dangerous territory you're wading into here because uh on our show on car stuff, we yeah. sometimes talk about um you know the the, uh, the incredible Rise in uh, in fatalities on Georgia highways uh, last year because mm-hmm. there was a huge increase, like twenty five percent increase or something, you know, year over year. Wow! And it was really big, and it was the first time in a long, long time, a long stretch of time where, um, you know, it had it had actually been on the rise. It would it was going down up until that point, and then suddenly this big spike. And trying to figure out why, and we're talking about distraction and all that stuff, mm-hmm. you know, smartphones and things behind the wheel, and trying to just you know guess why it's happening that way. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course. Somebody writes in and says, "Well, thirty-eight thousand people is not that many people." And you say, "Well, that, that's a lot of people that, that's that die people. On, on U.S. highways." And they say, "No, no. Back in the nineteen fifties, the number was like forty-four thousand, and uh that you know, that, and that was with less drivers on the road." And they give you all these stats about population and number of miles driven and all that. And I and I get, I, I got to be honest, I get kind of confused with with that, you know, with that, sure. that angle, like. Trying to compare apples to apples, you know, back then, you know, 60 years ago to today. That's, it's kind of tough to do. Well, but,
0: especially, you, you know, there's so many other factors there, right? Yeah. You might yeah. have fewer drivers on the road, but your safety regulations weren't anything like they are today exactly. 60 years ago. Exactly.
1: That was one thing. And we, we always argue that fact, point too. There were no crumple zones. There were no mm-hmm. airbags. There was none of that stuff going on. So maybe that accounts for it. But then they counter with another argument. So I'm just saying that, you know, I feel that somebody out there is going to have some kind of issue with, uh, you know, mentioning that 30, you know, 38,000 is a huge number. That was what it was last year mm-hmm. in, in the U.S. alone. That's a huge number no matter how you look at it. Yeah. I, I mean, even if it's, I, yeah. even if there are more people driving.
0: I think my response to anyone who would argue like, uh, that, that this is less than in the past, I would say that's good, but it could be lower and lower. Number of people who die as a result of car accidents, I think it's hard to argue that that's a bad thing. No, I mean, you certainly want that number to be as low, as close to zero as you could possibly
1: make it. Of course, automakers strive for that. They're trying, they're they're trying everything they can to make a, essentially a deathproof car. I mean, you can't, you know, you can't account for every situation. Right. Every single situation, but they're doing their best to make what is essentially a deathproof car. And, and there's several that, you know, several marks that Uh, they've got, they've gone years without a fatality. And I've got, uh, you know, the the stats somewhere back on my desk, but there's a few that have gone, I'm going to guess here, just based off my memory. It was like five or six years without a fatality uh, caused by a fault in a system in their vehicle.
0: Right. Well, and, and that also leads me to a different panel that I saw. We'll come, we'll come back to the road rage one because we got to get to that BMW. Oh yeah, that's right. But, uh, the, other panel I saw that was related to this was called Looking Forward to Rush Hour, The Future of Transit.
1: Looking Forward to Rush Hour.
0: Yeah, this was from a couple of uh industrial designers with Altuet Design talking about the future of transportation. And it wasn't just autonomous cars or even just the future of cars. Uh, that was one half of the panel, and that was uh done by a guy. He, the guy who, who led that part was uh, Dan Dorley. But there was also uh, Chip Walters who did the other half, which was more about the Hyperloop. Also fascinating, but that we're not talking about the Hyperloop today. So s- switching back over to Dorley, one of the things Dorley said that I thought was really interesting was that once you get to a level where you have a lot of autonomous cars on the road, like let's say the majority of cars on the road are autonomous, and you have proof I mean, obviously, this only works if everything's working properly, but you have proof that because of the number of autonomous vehicles on the road, the number of crashes decreases dramatically, uh, the number of deaths decrease dramatically, then you can start to play around with other stuff. Because if the autonomous cars are a proven technology that's safe, you can let up on some of the major... Uh, safety considerations you've had to put into place over the last few years in order to minimize that number that we talked about, that 30,000 or higher number. You could remove crumple zones. You can make cars smaller and lighter, so, which is especially important if your cars also are electric, because the battery will have less weight to have to move around. That will extend the driving range of your vehicle because you've made your vehicle lighter not that not that the battery's gotten any better but it doesn't have to push as much weight around
1: sure and again this this only works though if every vehicle out there is the same
0: yeah you have to have you have to have enough autonomous vehicles at least the majority if not a hundred percent of them out there so that you can be confident that by eliminating those safety features that are important right now it's not going to make any difference Um and I think that, I think we're pretty far away from that, but I thought it was an interesting point. He also talked about, uh, more manu- car manufacturers creating sort of a universal chassis, uh, where lots of different bodies of vehicles could fit on top of the same basic chassis, uh, leading to a future where ultimately you can, and you can do this now, actually, if you got enough money, you can go to certain specialty companies and 3D print A car design you could design a car if you wanted to and 3d print a car body that fits on top of a particular chassis and motor drivetrain configuration and uh so you could have your own like people would say well what kind of car is that that's my car
1: i call it a strickland
0: yeah it's it's a strickland (laughs) it doesn't drive anywhere (laughs) um clever yeah, that's, that's a joke about me not driving. Uh, but yeah, the, I thought it was interesting that he was looking into implications of autonomous cars well beyond safety, well beyond, uh, the, the shared model. He was looking at autonomous cars like, well, what does that do to the design of the car itself?
1: That's interesting that, you know, you could eliminate the things that we find that we have to have now. Yeah. And that's, that's an interesting way to think about it. Like if, if, if it's just not necessary, what could you really pair that design down to? What could what what smart things could you do with that Yeah, uh, to make it work better as an electric platform, as an autonomous platform. Right. It all it all makes uh it makes good sense, but again, you're you're counting on, you know, one hundred percent participation in this.
0: Yeah, you need to you would need to have enough buy-in so that there isn't a risk of having something like we saw with the previous google tests you know we talked about there were more than a dozen accidents involving google self driving cars previously only uh, only the the previous ones until fe- before february 2016 they were all uh at the fault of a of a human driver either the person manually controlling the self driving car or another driver So same thing is true if you're in an autonomous vehicle and there are human drivers on the road, then there's a chance that one of them could make a terrible, like there could just be an accident. It could be a failure. It could be a distracted driver, drunk driver. It could be anything. And until you eliminate those possibilities, it is pretty dangerous to just say, let's eliminate crumple
1: zones. Not very dangerous.
0: But you can do other stuff. Like imagine, you know, you have no need for controls, so you free up all that space in the front that would be normally be dedicated to a steering wheel and pedals and that kind of stuff you could have a workstation or an entertainment station cuz you're not driving you, you don't even just,
1: necessarily have to face forward
0: yeah you could face backward i had a discussion about this on forward thinking and lauren Immediately said, Yeah, could never do that. I'd be yakking all over the inside of that car. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people
1: have that trouble on a train already. Yeah. Or a bus, you know, in certain situations. Right. But uh, imagine if you could sit sideways. Yeah. Uh, the, the design of the vehicle could just be so radically different that uh, it, none of that really matters. You could, you could probably design, you know, those honeycomb systems where you could sleep in the car if you wanted
0: yeah, to. Yeah, it's kind of funny because it actually op- opens up an enormous opportunity for designers, right? Unprecedented opportunity because you'd be completely transforming the interior of a car. All the things we associate as being, well, not all, but a lot of the things we associate as being uh, the definition of what an inside of a car would look like go out the window, I mean, figuratively speaking. And so you could then... Have all kind of different configurations and designs.
1: Almost like, uh, almost more like home design really, or yeah. r- room design.
0: Yeah, uh, some sort of interior design for vehicles. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, strange, strange thought, huh? Hey, by the way, I want to clarify one thing real quick. Sure. Just something that's been bugging me for the last ten minutes. All right. I do know that there were Renault cars on U.S. roads prior <laughs> to the 1980s. I was just mentioning their brief comeback, you know, with, right. the, with the Alliance uh, lineup and uh, and and the kind of the I guess I'm going to mention the failure uh, that that was. It was uh, it was a not. Not all that well received
0: yeah, but I think most of my listeners are uh, most of my, let me let me clarify most of my listeners in the us. Are probably unfamiliar with the brand Renault.
1: Yeah, probably. Because
0: I mean, I, I'm, I'm guessing many of them were born in the 80s.
1: Yeah, it's a, it is a, um, seldom seen vehicle on the roads here yeah. in the United States. But
0: in other parts of the world, it is a very popular brand.
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot like, uh, Peugeot or something like sure. that. You know, and there's, there's reasons, but, uh, not the right show.
0: It's so funny when you start throwing around, uh, uh car manufacturer names and car brand names and then you, Come to that weird realization that in other parts of the world there are totally different ones, that and some some of which that are prevalent in the United States are largely unknown in certain parts of the world, and or it just ca- reminds just... you like oh yeah that's right the whole world isn't the U.S. Yeah, well
1: it's, it's it is strange. I mean once you travel outside and you see that you know, you see the same vehicle but it's named something different or something like that. It's just right. unusual. It's just a it's it, it is eye opening really.
0: Now I've been teasing this for the whole episode. But let's get back to uh, BMW and Mark Platschin.
1: Is this intended to hurt me? No, it's not way.
0: intended to hurt you. I just want to see what your reaction is, <laughs> Scott. I Scott and I started talking about this off microphone yesterday. And as I was talking, a little voice in my head said, shut up, Jonathan, save it for the show. So that's what we're going to do. It's not really, you. you might just shrug and say, oh, all right. But in order to set this up first, what
1: is BMW's slogan? Yeah, they're known as it's it's a driver's car, right? Yeah, it's a it's um the ultimate driving machine. Really. Yes, the I mean, so ultimate the, driving the, yeah, machine. The ultimate driving machine. So you would think that you know, of course, they're going to dabble in autonomous systems, like you know, maybe adaptive cruise control, something like yeah. that. But I just I, I've had a hard time all along seeing. BMW going fully autonomous because of the way they market their company right now. It's, it is the ultimate driving machine. It's a driver's vehicle. If you want something that's fun to drive, that's, uh, an experience, you get a BMW. You get, uh, you know, something that's, uh, it's, it's top of the line. It's expensive. It's plush. It's, uh, it's, it's a well handling car. It's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's, it's everything that you want. And it, it, again, ultimate driving machine. So, so why are they messing around with autonomous vehicles? That's, that's my thought. So that's, that's my concern.
0: Platschin works specifically with the autonomous vehicle section in BMW. And his response to that first part would be, I imagine, I'm putting some words into his mouth, so take this with a grain of salt, but I imagine he would say, it's where the future of vehicles definitely happens to be.
1: Completely understand that.
0: And you cannot ignore it. If you do, you'll be left behind. Yes. He said that the company was at a real... Um, they were in a quandary. He actually said that, uh, I think it was last year he was brought in to talk, or maybe it was a few years ago. He was taught, brought in to talk about, uh, the concepts they needed to talk about, if, uh, in an upcoming conversation, they were going to hit like some corporate milestone and they wanted to talk about what are the next 100 years of BMW going to look like now, Anyone who's listened to Forward thinking, you know, predicting the future is hard. Predicting five years out is hard. Predicting a 100 years out is impossible.
1: I can't predict tomorrow.
0: Yeah. Uh, only thing I can predict tomorrow is that if I don't wear sunblock, I will be sunburnt. That's it, because I know I'm going to be outside a lot. But he said it was his job to try and help coordinate this this vision of BMW for the next 100 years. And taking into account the fact that autonomous cars are... I mean, everyone at South by Southwest was talking about them as if it's a foregone conclusion. That's the future. That's where we're going. So taking that as part of it, they actually had serious internal discussions. What does this mean with our slogan? The ultimate driving machine. What do we do? Do we rebrand? How do we rebrand? This is something we pride ourselves upon. It is a corporate identity. It's it's kind of the central mantra of the company. It's it's the DNA of the company. They started playing with alternatives to the slogan like maybe we change it to something else. And they tried a few different things out and uh, all internally and no one liked them, no one liked them. And then finally someone said, well technically, it's a driving machine. It's a machine that's driving. It is the driving machine. We can make the ultimate driving machine. So it's still the same slogan. The context is redefined. Oh, boy.
1: Yeah. Oh, boy. I don't know. That's why I wanted I, to hear. I, I, yeah, I don't know about this. <laughs> hmm. All right. Well, it, so it's almost like you're putting the... the emphasis on the on the other part well, i don't know how, how do you even look at that i guess it's, it's just the, the how you i perceive would say it.
0: The, i'd say the emphasis the emphasis previously was on driving yeah because you think of driving as a verb that people indulge
1: so in. now it's the ultimate driving machine, machine. i see okay well ah, boy that's so subtle
0: so if you make if, and this was also an interesting discussion because people asked the question said what happens to brand identity in a future of autonomous vehicles that are likely not going to be owned by individuals, but will be in some form of shared economy. And they had a really good response for this. They said, well, you could argue that all autonomous cars would essentially be alike, that one you know, robo-Uber car would be the same as the next robo-Uber car. Except eventually someone would come along and say, you know what, we're going to make a different robo-Uber car that has X features in it, which... Appeals to why demographic. Yeah,
1: somebody will pay a premium for that feature.
0: Right. Because if you're like, Hey, we noticed that, uh, that young people between the ages of such and such and such and such, they really care about these things and they don't care about these other things. Let's make some cars that go straight, straight to what they care about and we'll be able to dominate that market. And then you get competition there because other companies will follow, which means you still end up getting that differentiation. You still get the brand identity. The question is, How do they define themselves so that the experience of being in, say, a BMW autonomous car is different from being in a Lexus autonomous car?
1: Well, now we know all they do is put the emphasis on machine. That's it, right? (laughs) But I thought- I I guess it beats like, uh, BMW, we give up. (laughs) Yeah? Or
0: BMW. It was fun while it lasted.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, uh, yeah I, I, you can come up with a bunch of funny slogans, I'm sure, for it. But, but honestly, like to stick with what they have, I, really, I, I think maybe if, the, if that's what they're going to do and they're going to push it that way, mm-hmm. that may be exactly what they do. They may You may hear that emphasized machine over yeah. driving, which we hear now. So yeah. that's going to be really weird, isn't it? I think so. I mean, I've,
0: I also think it's going to be weird to be in a world where assuming that the shared car – approach is what, what wins out. It'll be weird to live in that world for lots of different reasons. Cause a lot of us are very used to having our own personal vehicle for multiple reasons, not just for the convenience sake, but convenience outside of just, I have a car whenever I need to go someplace, assuming that's not broken down. What about all the stuff that's in a car? Like a lot of people have stuff that they keep in their car. Uh, and it might be sporting
1: equipment or, you know, things like that.
0: Diapers. Yeah. Stuff like uh, new parents might have a box of diapers in the car so that when they travel places, they, they have their supply right there. Sure. If they need to run out to the car, they can, or, but in the future, if you have shared vehicles, obviously you can't just keep stuff in a car. You'd have to carry everything you need with you all the time. Uh, and, and you would either have to pare down the stuff so that you're saying, well, I might not be prepared for certain situations, but. Yeah, but What's isn't,
1: trade-off we'll isn't it really nice to just kind of leave an umbrella in your car and have it when you need it and you don't yeah. have to remember it every single time you go out the door? And it was funny because Platchin actually said, well, maybe we'll have
0: services where you could actually store your stuff uh in what would account – what would end up being like a mobile storage unit and you could just call upon it to come to you whenever you needed it. And I thought – that puts more cars on the road. Let me
1: tell you something. That's a terrible idea. Yeah. I, I, I just tell you right now, that's a bad idea.
0: Joe and Lauren both agree with you. Yeah. And I do too. Yeah. I, I also thought like, well, that doesn't sound like that's ideal. So yeah, there's obviously some well, huge trade-offs that would happen. Well,
1: imagine a block of lockers. You know, that's what it'd be. A yeah. block of lockers driving down the road with your stuff and everybody else's stuff in it. Yeah. And what if uh, someone across town needs, I know that they would probably keep it in a central area, a central area. Yeah, would... but
0: people don't all like, like, Let's say that my next-door neighbor and I both use the same unit because we both live next door to each other. We don't necessarily work anywhere close to each other. Mm-hmm. So he might work on the other side of town. He needs his umbrella. I need my umbrella. That car – I mean there, yeah. easily you could see problems with that model.
1: There are some flaws.
0: There was a similar model that I also – let me see what you think about this one, oh boy. Scott. Okay. So talking about shared cars – now, in the examples I've been giving so far, it's essentially a fleet of service vehicles, something along the lines of an Uber or a Lyft, only with no human drivers, right? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh One of the alternatives I heard, Shad Law actually mentioned this possibility, which I think is uh almost as bad as the traveling locker idea. What if instead of it being a fleet car... It's a communal car among multiple households, and you own like a sixth of that car. Hmm. Can you imagine that working out? How uh, would you guarantee that the car would be available for all the households? Well, I on guess demand?
1: okay, this isn't as bad an idea as I mean I understand that it's it's not great, yeah, and there's a lot of flaws to this one as well, but um isn't this kind of the idea behind you know the the companies that allow you to have kind of a, a lease on Three different types of vehicles at one time. Mm-hmm. And you can use the one that you need when you need it. So you lease, um, you know, a, a sedan, you lease a compact car that's very good, you know, with mileage, mm-hmm. and you lease, uh, you know, a, a pickup truck. And when you need, need the pickup truck on the weekend, you can rent that, you can, you can have that brought to you or you can go get it, um, use it for that amount of time. But what if somebody else is using that, uh, that, that sedan when you need it? Right. You know, they need it for the week and you also need it for the week. I mean, yeah. how does that all work? I don't, again, same, set of problems, I think, Yeah, um, I, maybe I, a smaller scale than the one that I'm talking about. I mean,
0: maybe if there's maybe if, the only way I can see it working is that you, again, go back to the fleet of cars. So you've got a fleet of autonomous cars. You've got a group of people who have essentially collectively invested so that they own they quote unquote own one of those cars. They don't actually own a car. They just own a share. It's a timeshare. Yeah. It's like a timeshare for those vehicles that are on demand. So if I call for a car and my neighbor calls for a car and they're both, and we're both on this, this, uh, plan, two different cars come because of the way we've agreed with this fleet. And it's the purchase price of the vehicle that ends up covering the cost of the individual trip as opposed to doing a trip uh you know a fee per trip
1: like you like a typical rental car now
0: yeah so essentially it would be like all right well uh, collectively we all got together and we put in $35,000 to quote unquote buy a car what that really does is give us unlimited travel using this service within its range of service you know assuming that it isn't you know state or country wide or whatever yeah and i could see it working that way Maybe, but I can't see it working in such a way where you actually physically have one car to share between the
1: multiple households. No, that would never work. Yeah. Just wouldn't work out. I, there's got to be a way around it. Like you said, it's got to be, there's got to be a, a pool of vehicles to draw from. Yeah. It just wouldn't work.
0: Yeah. But this was the, I wish you could have gone because I wish you could have seen, uh, panels like these and some of the other ones too. Like I was only able to go to, to three panels total, but there were so many. There were, all about autonomous vehicles. It
1: sounds fascinating. I, I really didn't know until some of the uh, you know the reports that I've been reading mm. just for this podcast uh, that that this show is so focused on that type of technology. I I, yeah. I tend to think of more of CES to be like that, yeah. Uh, it, rather than this uh, South by Southwest.
0: Yeah, it's 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 interesting because South by Southwest Interactive, for many years, was focused on mobile apps. Like yeah. that was the big thing: mm-hmm. mobile apps and some gaming. But usually you're talking about the next Twitter. You know, uh, Meerkat and Periscope both came out in 2015. Meerkat went under in 2016. Mm -hmm. Periscope is still around because it's owned by Twitter. Uh, uh, Anyway, that's the kind of stuff you would expect. But they had different tracks of programming under Interactive. And one of the tracks was titled Intelligent Future. And that's where all the robotics and autonomous vehicles and AI, all those discussions fell under that. And uh so, a lot of it had to do with the future of cars, and again, not just autonomous cars, but the idea of uh what what is it going to look like from multiple standpoints? I think autonomous played a huge role because everyone just assumes that's going to be part of the future, no matter how it turns out
1: yeah, you know I, one thing we should probably point out here is that we we always talk about how it's happening it's it's incrementally happening yeah. what's going on and we we're, we're getting little bits and pieces of it now, and we see it you know in our everyday cars but not the whole package yet. And mm-hmm. the whole package, they always it seems like it's always 10 years out is what they say, but yeah. I'm seeing estimates now that range anywhere from 3 years to 30 years. Yes. And and those are all to be honest, those are all realistic. Yeah. I mean, it could take 30 years. It could be faster than that. It could be it, we could uh, have this by uh 2020. You never know.
0: Yeah, I think I think 3 years is probably what we would we would start to see actual vehicles make their way onto the roads. Thirty years is where you get to the point where you're at saturation. Yeah,
1: and you know, I know on this podcast, even especially in car stuff, but on on this one, we've we've mentioned before, they're already out there. They're cars that can drive you home from work without you touching the wheel or yeah. doing anything. You, but they simply can't say it's an autonomous vehicle. Right. You have to be sitting behind the wheel and and allow it to, and you can allow it to do it. Right, but you have to be there and you have to be ready to take control at any moment. And Not often,
0: often you'll get a little little beep asking you to make sure you make contact with the wheel to prove that you're still paying attention and everything. Exactly, because
1: so you're not uh, taking a nap on the way home. You don't want
0: to, you know, those companies don't want to be liable for yeah. a terrible accident.
1: So the three to 30 years we're talking about is is where the companies are actually confident enough to say...
0: This is an autonomous, just, you know, self-driving car. Just let it do it. Yeah, uh, and... and uh, I'm so glad you were able to join me on this this episode and talk about this kind of stuff. I I I know that I come across as I love to needle you with these cuz you're the car guy and it's uh, fun.
1: It's all in good fun.
0: I should also mention that uh pretty much everyone's agreed that personal car ownership is not ever going to go away entirely in the United States. They, no one seemed to believe that that was the case. Uh people said that it may be that fewer people own their own vehicles, but You'll you'll still be allowed to own and operate your own
1: vehicle. Yeah, I could see that happening,
0: especially for things like rural areas. It doesn't make sense to have an autonomous car service out serving way all the way rural areas. Like you know, cattle ranchers aren't going to have any need for that.
1: No, this is a uh, a congested city situation.
0: Yes, this is for urban dense urban environments, and not it's not ideal for other situations. So. Uh, but one guy did say that he could envision a future in which car ownership of uh, you know, like an actual car owner will be about as uh, rare as horse owners are today. Really? Yeah. Hmm. So there are plenty of people who still own horses, just not the general population. Yeah. There's a there's
1: a lot of wide open space out there, and I think that uh, you know that's where they'll be still used. Of course. I yeah. Mean, maybe in cities. I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but there may be a point where, you know, you can't drive into the city in your own personal vehicle. Yeah, you, you
0: maybe have a giant parking lot in the outskirts of the city and you get out from there and then you take your city, uh, city approved transportation once you're inside. Yeah, now,
1: wouldn't that be something? I mean, that'd be a, a, a dramatic change in the way that we do things now, I mean, it would it significantly change the, uh, the, well, the entire cityscape, really. Yeah. Everything would be different. So um, it's a fascinating topic, and, and again, thanks for inviting me in today to do this. I, I always have fun talking with you, and I know you like to rib me a little bit about <laughs> uh, car ownership and, uh, you know, the way it's going. And, uh, you know, I agree on a lot of this stuff. I mean, I think we we can have a, a decent conversation back and forth about yeah. um I understand that, you know. Things are moving towards autonomous vehicles, but I, I also, and I'm glad that you said it too, that, uh, you know, it's never gonna go completely away.
0: Well, and, and to be fair, we're so, so, so in the baby stage of this, right? We're in the, the, the earliest stages of this autonomous era. Sure. That making any definitive statement, such as autonomous cars will completely replace manual cars, or that car ownership will completely become a thing of the past, mm. or even that Manual cars will no longer be allowed in, within city limits. Any of those, it's so premature to make any kind of statement like that. Um, and honestly, it may turn out that we just see that the ideal mix is somewhere in the middle with a mixture of autonomous cars and manually driven cars. We don't know. Yeah. You know the, the the mathematical model suggests that if you went all autonomous, you avoid a lot of problems. But that's not necessarily the way it will actually shake out in real life.
1: Well, I'm with you. I try to avoid the predictions because it just ends up making you look like a fool later, right? When when it, well, when it happens eventually. I, but I, um,
0: that's pretty much status quo for me, Scott, <laughs> well, so. well, you kind of have to though. <laughs> I,
1: you know. Anyways, I I really I don't like to do that, but uh, but I like to just kind of sit back and 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 kind of just take it all in because there's so many changes happening right now it's it's actually pretty exciting to yeah see it going.
0: yeah i mean and you know you, you got to remember that autonomous cars if they become a thing like a real serious thing like most people believe there are implications well beyond the auto industry that things that could really be effective like like airline industry you know if you're able to jump into an autonomous autonomously driven car and you can do work or you can go to sleep. And you are not, det- you don't need to get to whatever your destination is within a couple of hours. That could really impact a lot of, uh, airline
1: travel. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, I mean, okay, I know we got to wrap up here, but, uh, you're, you're making me think of, you know, the, the, uh, the kind of, uh, pros cons you, you weigh if you're making a short trip on a plane. Yeah, you know if you're flying from here to Orlando, so. sure, yeah, and which is like
0: uh, a, like from here, it's like an hour, li- a little less than an hour and a half flight. From yeah, to but, but Orlando.
1: then that, then you got to take into account you got to get up early, you got to pack yeah. the car, you got to get yeah. to the airport and park and yeah. all that stuff. It ends up taking more than half the day. Yep. But you could just drive there too, and if you can do that in a, in a way that doesn't, it's not taxing on you, right? It's uh, it's it's actually comfortable, and you're in your own inv- your own car. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot more comfortable than being crammed into an airplane. seat. Sure why would you not do that
0: you have the opportunity to stop at a specific place to have food rather than just buying whatever yeah. little snack box happens to yeah. be on the plane yes yeah,
1: so you're right it it does change even uh, you know that short distance sure. air travel
0: yeah now for long distances obviously i i think air travel un- unless you're determined to do the great autonomous american road trip uh i think your the airlines will still be very much uh, a strong player in that but it will affect their bottom line and yeah. that will affect how they route planes, how they design planes, how they uh how they price tickets. So there's some big potentially disruptive things that could happen ripple out from the automotive industry out into many other ones. So it's pretty interesting stuff. Yep. So hey. Scott it's been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining me. Well,
1: thank you for having me again. I appreciate it, and I'm uh I'm I'd, I'd, I'd be happy to come back and talk about stuff like this anytime you want.
0: Well, I'll definitely be having you back on here before too long, I'm sure. And of course, people can listen to your show, Car Stuff. Uh, you and Ben Bolin tackle all things vehicular, uh, and that's it's an amazing show. So if you guys haven't listened to that, make sure you go and subscribe to it because uh, if there ever happened to be a question you had about Vehicles, uh, whether it's how they work or the design stories behind them or even stuff like I still love the series you did about, uh, coast to coast races. Oh, I loved it. Oh, very that good. Well, thank you. I didn't know you were a listener. Oh, that's, yeah. That's, I'm that's a great. listener. I, oh, I, I listen
1: to this. Well, I appreciate the, uh, you know, the, the plug for our show there. That's, uh, it's a very nice. <laughs> <laughs> and, and we have something like 750 episodes. So if you go to our, you know, our, our website, which is carstuffshow.com dot um, .com and you can find every one of the podcasts we've ever done there. Yeah. I think iTunes limits it to what like 2 or 300 200, 200 yeah. yes
0: the, the latest 200. So if you go to uh, carstuffshow.com then you can check out all of them. And yeah, you know take a look, find some that immediately tickle your fancy, listen to them. And then I guarantee you, you're going to get hooked, and then you're just going to go on a binge.
1: Oh, shucks. I appreciate it. Thank yeah. you.
0: So, uh, guys, if you have any questions for me, any suggestions for future episodes or guests I should have on the show, anything like that, send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter at both of those. The handle is h s w, and I will talk to you again really soon.